بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله It seems like it's been a while, I think, because we had extra Wednesdays in the month of August. So this is the first Wednesday of September, although today is September 13th. Yeah, so we're, we're almost halfway through September, and it's the first Wednesday. Okay, or second Wednesday, rather. Yeah, okay. So we left off on page 48 at the second to the last paragraph. And my goal today, inshallah, is to finish page 48 to the end of page 60. So that's 12 pages, give or take. Uh, and that is because from 48 until the end, he gives a summary of the khalq, the physical form, and the khuluq or character of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. So it's a summary. And after this summary, which ends on page 60, the next chapter, starting on page 61, goes into uh, other topics. It goes into other topics, and the title of that next chapter is the ethereal realities in the physical attributes of the prophet so ethereal that's a so ethereal means the subtle the subtle al-lata'if uh, right the ethereal in yeah, you could say in arabic al-haqa'iq al-latifa or al-khafiya or al-isharat al-latifa ethereal refers to something that is subtle Right, and this is where he talks about the physical attributes of the Prophet wasallam, and the uniqueness of his features and how those features uh, are reflections of his character, the physiognomy that we spoke about in the last class. So we're going to finish this section on 48 to 60 inshallah, even if we go through certain things quickly because it is really just a summary of the Shama'il. In these 12 pages, you have a very, very brief summary of the basics regarding the khalq aspect, the physical aspect, and the khuluq aspect of character. So starting on page 48, we left off on the second to the last paragraph where the Shaykh says, it is related from Jabir, Ibn Abdullah radiyallahu anhu the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam visited Sayyida Fatima and found her grinding flour she was wearing a garment made from the skin of a camel when the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam saw her in this state he wept and then said o fatima swallow the bitterness of the world for eternal bliss then Allah revealed upon him, and, your, and soon will your guardian Lord give you 
so you shall be well pleased. Uh, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu also said, so before we do that, uh, this hadith that he relates from Jabir ibn Abdullah just speaks to the state of the daughter of the Rasulullah sallallahu And how does that relate to the person of the Prophet sallallahu Well, we see his zuhud and we see the zuhud of his family. And we see the zuhud of Sayyidah Fatima, her otherworldliness was a reflection of the otherworldliness or zuhud of Rasulullah One narration says that of all the people, no one resembles the Prophet the most in character and in form, khalqan wa khuluqan, than Sayyidah Fatima Allah So she's a reflection of his states. He says, the Prophet of Allah also said, I am but a servant and I eat as a servant eats. How does a servant eat? What kind of sitting style do they observe? They sit on the floor. They eat with their hands. But how do they sit on the floor? Yeah, so there's different narrations about it. One mentions the lifting of one leg, the thigh close to the chest, and the other leg on the floor. The other narration mentions it uh, as one would sit in tashahud, you know. And in one narration, the third one mentions sitting uh, in the squat position, what we call the Asian squat, where the feet are perfectly flat and just squatting straight down. Those three narrations describe the sitting style of his eating. So when he says, I eat as a servant eats, it's describing those two or three different ways of sitting. Uh, there isn't a narration that describes him sitting cross-legged. We tend to sit cross-legged because it's more comfortable. Uh, but in, according to some of the ulama, in a minority view, uh, some of the ulama say that this cross-legged position is actually considered a form of uh, ittika, a form of leaning, uh, mentioned in the hadith where it's been discouraged to eat muttaki'ah. Uh, although majority say that doesn't refer to sitting cross-legged, they say it refers to sitting with your, uh, you know, lying on your side, you know, or lying on your back and eating like this, like the Romans or whoever, getting fed grapes. Uh, some even say it's leaning with your back on the wall, could be ittika. But the majority's position is that it's leaning with your hand supporting your body or leaning completely on the side or lying on your back. Anyhow, uh, this is about the humility. The Prophet ﷺ has said, okay, these narrations here in the next paragraph, they're all weak. They're all yani, hadith da'ifa. So we'll read them and then just get a bit of commentary. The Prophet ﷺ has said, as it has been reported, whoever has three sons and does not name one of them Muhammad has been harsh to me. And here I think the phrase in Arabic is Jafani, uh, meaning they've, been, they've behaved in a somewhat uh, cold way, if you will. Those that you name Muhammad, do not insult them, do not hit them, 
but honor them. Every house in which there is a Muhammad is blessed. And every shura, consultation, within which there, is, there enters a person named Muhammad will have a good outcome. A caller will call out on the day of standing, whoever's name is Muhammad, let him stand and take his place in paradise. All of this will be in honor of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa So these are a few of a body of hadith which speak about the virtues of naming one's child Muhammad. Now the ulama, they cite these hadith narrations and they also note that they are all uh, weak in the sense that the chains of narrations for these hadith are da'ifa, meaning the, there's either narrators that are unknown or narrators that are lacking in probity and precision. So the narrations aren't acceptable from a, the standpoint of the hadith sciences. So that means we wouldn't say emphatically, yani bin jazm, qara Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. We would say it has been related that the Prophet said, in a passive form, without saying he said it. So the scholars note these hadith and they reproduce them in their books because these narrations don't pertain to halal and haram. And these narrations don't pertain to the core tenets of faith, aqidah. They pertain to fadailul a'mal, virtuous actions that are already supported with other clear narrations. So they have a degree of leniency when it comes to relating these hadith. And you'll find them repeated throughout the works uh, regarding the virtues of the Prophet Now, it is generally recommended to name one's children after the names of the prophets or the righteous. And the best of the prophets and the best of the righteous is none other than Rasulullah So from that narration, we understand the virtue of naming children, boys, Muhammad. If you go to some Muslim countries, uh, like Mauritania, if you want to call out a stranger, and you don't know their name, obviously, but you want to call them out, Say they're ahead of you. You say, ah, Muhammad. Ah, see Muhammad. And they will all turn around. They'll all turn around because that's everyone's name. You have a, a father who has six boys and they're all named Muhammad. Muhammad Amin, Muhammad Yahya, Muhammad Qasim, Muhammad Sadiq, Muhammad Sadiq, Muhammad this, Muhammad that. So the second name is the identifier distinguishing them from the other Muhammads. So this is something widespread in the, the, the Muslims throughout history. It was understood by most, at least the educated, that these hadith, okay, they're not authentic from the hadith standpoint, but from virtuous actions, we act on them in hopes that, that naming our son Muhammad will be a benefit for us. However, there's also a great danger in that. If you go to Turkey, for instance, you'll notice a lot of people named Mehmet. And it's said that they would name them Mehmet and they wouldn't call them Muhammad for fear of two things. Fear number one, they are afraid that they may get angry 
with their son and shout at them. And if they always call them Muhammad, they may shout the name Muhammad out of anger. And they, they want to distance themselves as far as possible from using that name in a negative context. The second danger is that, okay, maybe you don't shout that name, but maybe Mehmet, maybe this person you've named Muhammad becomes corrupt and they dishonor the name they've been given. So it's a kind of way of protecting them as well. And so it's said that the Ottomans would name the children Mehmet and would eventually call them Muhammad if they turned out to be okay. <laughs> if they turned out to be okay, they become upright people, righteous people, and in their older years they would say, okay, Muhammad, right? Um, during the time of uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, there's a narration where he actually issued an edict, a kind of ruling, curtailing the naming of boys as Muhammad, basically preventing parents for a period of time from naming their boys Muhammad for fear that they would not honor that name. So there's a precedent for what the Ottomans did because obviously it's not haram and sharia but if you feel there's a danger because everyone's starting to name their child Muhammad to the point where you know, maybe not everyone given that name is going to live up to it or maybe people will show bad adab to them or shout that name in a way that is not suitable for the believer to do. That's why. Yeah, so the formal name is Muhammad and he's been given the name, uh, the parents probably gave him the name Tabarrukan, you know, just seeking the blessings of having that name. But the formal name by which he's addressed in, as a child and through life is the second name. Yeah, that's another practice. So his, his, his full name is Muhammad Muhsin. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's very common. So this is interesting because you're, you're mentioning something in Pakistan, and I'm mentioning something in Mauritania, and then something in in Turkey. But you find that throughout the Islamic the Islamic world, Muslims have traditionally done that. Yeah. In, in Morocco and Algeria, they have another practice. They don't have Mehmet. They have Muhammad. They give it a fatha instead of a Dhamma. And, when you, and this is important to know because when you, there are certain scholars with that name. And when you read their books, the books are written in manuscript form with handwriting. And it, it's spelled Muhammad, Mim Ha, Mim Dal. And then right after it says Fatha. And then the rest of the name, right? If you don't know that, you might see the book and say, their name is Muhammad Fatha Fulani. And it's not. It's Muhammad, then the full name. The Fatha is just to clarify. It's just a different word. It's not the formal name. So it's, it's kind of like their version of Mehmet, I guess, yeah. And sometimes they would say Habu, like in Algeria.
I think maybe in Syria they have this too a little bit. Hamu. Hamu. I know Sheikh, well, Sheikh Muhammad al-Hashimi. There's a lot of Algerians and Moroccans that migrated to Syria. to Syria. So that's how the tradition probably took root a little bit in Syria, in Damascus at least, because they would uh, be affectionately called Hamu. Right? Yeah. Next narration. If we're going to finish this, i got to stop. Tirmidhi, Al-Nasai, Ibn Majah, Ibn Khuzayma, and Al-Hakim have all related that a blind man once came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Supplicate to Allah that he cures me. The Prophet ﷺ said, If you want, I will supplicate for you. Or if you would like, you can be patient, which would be better for you. The man said, I would like you to supplicate for me. The Prophet ﷺ then ordered the man to perform the ablution, the wudu, excellently, and then to supplicate with this dua. Allahumma inni as'aluka wa atawajjahu ilayka bi nabiyika Muhammadin nabiyin rahma inni tawajjahdu bika ila rabbi fi hajati hadihi li tuqda li Allahumma shafi'hu fiya. So, O oh Allah, I ask you and turn to you by your Prophet Muhammad, the Prophet of Mercy. I have turned to you, my Lord, regarding this need of mine so that it is fulfilled for me. O oh Allah, grant this intercession for me. So this is the narration in Tirmidhi, uh, An-Nasai, Ibn Majah, Ibn Khuzayma and others known as Hadith Al-A'ma, the Hadith of the Blind Man. And it's a sound hadith. So... What's the link between this section and the previous one? It's basically the, the barakah of the Prophet ﷺ and asking Allah by the rank of the Prophet ﷺ to give one something, fulfill a need. So that ends the section that related to the zuhud and the states and the barakah. We now come to the description of the Prophet ﷺ. Now this is from page 50 to, uh, to the top of 54. That, so this is from the khalq aspect, the physical uh, description. He says, the scholars have said that the written description of the Prophet's features protects a house from burglary, fire, and flood. If it is kept with someone, then Allah will protect them from the tyranny of rulers, the plots of demons, and his house will always remain happy. So what he's saying here is that this is from the mujarrabat, right? Mujarrabat are those things that are tried and true practices. It's been found through experience that when the person has, for example, the hilya adorning their house, when they keep the shema'il or they keep these descriptions in written form in their house, they've identified a pattern through just repeated observation that those people tend to have their houses protected from uh, things that are happening to other houses that don't have them. So that's not a sharia proof, obviously. This is not something coming from a direct verse of Quran or a hadith, but it's from the mujarrabat. And the mujarrabat are very expansive. And there's not a great deal of restriction on the mujarrabat. If you find that... Um, you know, this person says, I make this dua 
uh, before Fajr every single morning. And I find from my experience that it removes anxieties. And people who have done it also find that it removes anxieties. Then that's just mujarrab. It's something that's been tried and true. And it doesn't guarantee as an absolute ironclad guarantee that it's going to remove anxiety from me or you. But it's, there's a pattern established. The ulama say that in, in those kinds of du'as, it's not this, any kind of secret formula in the du'a per se, but it is in the tongue and the heart of the one uttering the du'a. It's like saying, I have this really strong, sharp sword that will vanquish any enemy. Yes, it's the best sword, one of the best swords, one of the sharpest swords. But ultimately, it's not the sword. It is the hand that wields the sword. Likewise with dua, it's the level of certainty and sincerity that makes the dua, right? So for these mujarrabat, they're not, you know, they're not magical formulas. They're just things that are tried and true for people who uh, keep those types of things in their house with the intention of, of having the barakah of that in their house. Uh, so he goes on to mention the physical description. Uh, before I do that, and this is why we end up taking more time than I intended, um, I just find there's important points to mention here. Um, we know that, uh, the, we, that the scholars mention that one of the ways of removing anxiety is abundant salawat, salutations upon the Prophet ﷺ. And here we find the author saying that keeping the written description in a house protects it from burglary, fire, and flood. But the question remains, uh, how is it that a person sends abundant salawat upon the Prophet ﷺ, yet they still find that they're stressed? They still find they're dealing with, with some anxieties. Does that disprove what is said regarding the benefits of salawat? Not at all. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Kabir Katani, rahimahullah, he mentions in one of his books uh, that what this means is if this person was not sending salawat, the anxieties would be far greater than what they're dealing with the stresses would be far more burdensome than what they're currently dealing with. And it's because of their own shortcomings that they're dealing with these things, or their own rank by which Allah tests them. But if they were not invoking those salawat in abundance, what they would experience of anxiety and stress would be far greater than what they're currently dealing with. So it's all a matter of perspective. So we could probably say the same thing for what the author is saying here. You know, a person may still find Okay, they have the shema'il in their house. They have the hiliya adorning their wall, but they still have problems. They still have stress. They still have things going on in the house. What that means is without it, maybe you'd have a lot more going on. Without it, maybe there would be bigger catastrophes happening. So it's all a matter of perspective. So going now to the physical description, uh, we did the shema'il, uh, we covered the text of Imam Tirmidhi back in 2018 and uh, many of you were here for that should do it again say no more say no more 
so this section from page 50 to the top of 52, or to the end of 52, what he does is take individual phrases from some of those hadith, particularly in the first chapter of the Shama'il. And what we're going to do is just read through them. I won't analyze them too much because that calls for a full commentary. And he's going to mention them again. So we'll just go through this in passing. He says, and maybe I'll offer a bit of commentary when appropriate. So he says, number one, Azharul Lawn. Now, when I was translating the Shema'il, I had a difficult time with this passage um, because English as a language has certain historical connotations with certain words, right? That are different from the connotations found in the Arabic language. So notice that he says here, for Azharul Lawn, meaning he was of brilliant white complexion like the whiteness of the moon. All right? Now, let me ask you this. In English, you hear the word white describing the complexion of a person. What comes to mind? Me. Right? Now, did, did the Arabs have people that were white like me? No. Caucasian? Yeah, as a as a phenotype, Caucasians are not Arabs, and Arabs are not Caucasians. And language is an interesting thing because it's not as if the the, the Arabs had no interactions with white people before with Caucasians, right? It's not as if they never had interactions with uh, uh, black Africans. They did. So the language that the of the Arabs that they would use to describe complexions is different from how we use the English language to describe complexions. So for example, an Arab in that time would be described as abyad, but that is not to be mistaken for Caucasian white. When they would describe someone who is Caucasian white, someone who is of a very pale complexion compared to the Arabs, they wouldn't just say abyad. They would say, Abyad Amhaq. Amhaq. And one hadith in the Shema'il explicitly negates that from the Prophet. And he was not Abyad Amhaq. Right? Which means that the whiteness of the Prophet was what the Arabs would call white as a description of the, the, the complexions of the Arabs different from the abyad amhaq complexion of Caucasians, right? Uh, so azharul loan, if it's not white as we understand it as Caucasian white, what is it? One narration mentions it as hindli alone, hindli alone. And hindli, you could say, is of a wheatish complexion, a wheatish complexion. And you could picture what that is, right? That could be anyone who is uh, of a wheatish complexion. So in the spectrum of color among the Arabs, where you'd have dark brown uh, on one side, and then you'd have like a, a more wheatish complexion on the other side, it's wheatish complexion, right? It's hard to say because there's, a, there's even diversity among, among them. 
should think of uh, Habib Ali Jaffri. He's a Yemeni scholar. I mean, half of you have this Hintli yeah. alone. Like, I have it, but even I remember sitting with one of my teachers and she was like, no, it's darker than you. Oh, really? Yeah. Just like in Syria, Hintli is. It's yeah. Like, it's like a, a darker complexion than you. They actually put it on the cards, not. Yeah. So you have another thing to consider, and that is the Arabs in the past, they weren't staying indoors all day. When you look at pictures of Arabs from the 1900s in Arabia, they're, they're very tanned because they're outside in the sun. So the lightness of complexion to which, uh, which he is described with is in comparison to the very tanned, brownish, uh, uh, we say, what's the word in Arabic? Yani azhar alone is like a sense of reddishness to that too, right? Um, compared to the uh, sumra, you know, the, the asmar, Right, the hadith of Anas says Asmar alone, but it's a hadith shad, and it's an anomalous narration. Anyhow, I just wanted to clarify that a little bit. His eyes were intensely black and were large. He had long eyelashes. The Prophet's face shone with luminosity. Aqna al-Anf, he had an elegant nose with a slight elevation in the middle. Mudawwar al-Wajhi ma'atul, the blessed face of the Prophet وسلم, was oval. And it was, not, uh, it was not fully circular, nor was it sharp and narrow like a sword. It was oval. So there's balance. There was a space between the two front teeth of the Prophet ﷺ. The forehead of the Prophet was large. Or Jabin can also mean the brow, like this area is the Jabin. You can also refer to here too. But usually it's like this area, the temples. His, he had a thick beard. The chest and the stomach of the Prophet ﷺ were equal, meaning it did not protrude. He was broad-shouldered with a strong frame. The limbs, forearms, and the legs of the Prophet ﷺ were all well-built. He had open palms and feet. And what that means is that he had large palms, Right? and very large, sturdy, firm feet. Sa'ilu al-Atraf, he had long fingers. They weren't stubby, they weren't short. Anwar al-Mujarrad, meaning if he did not have his blessed shirt on, his body was clear and shining. Daqiqul al-Masrubah, there was a thin line of hair from the chest of the Prophet ﷺ to his navel. Rub'atun laysa bil al-ba'in wala bil qasir al-mutaraddid. He was of medium height, neither too tall nor too short, 
Despite this, there was no tall person who stood next to the Prophet ﷺ except that he appeared taller than them. Rajulu Sha'ar, there was a slight wave in the hair of the Prophet ﷺ. It was not curly or lank. So this is a summary of the physical features. Now he goes into some of the other aspects of the features. He says, furthermore, if the Prophet ﷺ smiled, it resembled the whiteness of hailstones. And when he spoke, a light could be seen emitting from his two front teeth. His neck was like a column of silver. Right? They're contrasting the brightness of the teeth to the, the, the relative darkness from behind the teeth. So when he's smiling or speaking, you can see that contrast quite clearly between the teeth. And his neck was like a column of silver. And they say that mean, doesn't mean it was literally the color of silver. It means in terms of its balance and shape and strength and smoothness and luminosity. He was the most beautiful of people from afar and the sweetest and best of them up close. It was as though the sun could be seen in his blessed face. And the, the actual wording of the hadith in, in Arabic it, it would read as if, it's as if the sun is flowing upon his face, like the brightness. His face would shine like the full moon in the dark night. Whoever saw him bef before he spoke to him would be overwhelmed in awe of him, and whoever interacted with him would fall in love with him. It's a beautiful hadith, this part. It says, Whoever would see him by chance at a distance, they just accidentally saw him, you know, out of chance. For the first time, they would feel great awe, heiba, right? And then when that person would interact with him and mix with him, they would come to love him. And then he says, when Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyah described the Prophet ﷺ to her husband, Abu Ma'bad, after the Prophet had passed her tent whilst migrating with Sayyiduna Abu Bakr as-Siddiq she said, a blessed man passed by us, and he was like this and that. Her husband said, describe him to me, O Umm Ma'bad. Now what's interesting here, Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyah, she was in the, in the Hijra story, we covered in the, in the Seerah class. They stopped by that area and they received a small meal, some animals. Uh, the milk was blessed as a result of the Prophet ﷺ's presence. And she saw him once and had Iman in him and she describes him based on this, once, this one encounter. She said, I saw a man who is distinctly luminous and had a gleaming face. He had a beautiful form, neither blemished by a large belly nor disfigured by an unusually small head. He was handsome with large eyes. His eyelashes were long and he had depth in his voice. He had a beautiful neck, a thick beard, and arched eyebrows that met, that met aqran. So if you have, if you have two eyebrows, right, and you have a space in between them, 
they're not coming together as a unibrow. Now what she is describing, it appears that she's describing him having a unibrow where they meet together. But we have other hadith which say that they, there was a slight space in between them. So how do we reconcile between these two narrations? There's a couple of different ways they're reconciled. Some of the ulama say, uh, number one, she is an old lady and she only saw him once. And we have others who saw him repeatedly, multiple people, all of whom narrate that it was with a slight space. So their narrations take precedence over hers. That's one uh, way of looking at it. The other way of reconciling it is saying that they were closely together. They were close together, but there was a slight space that could be seen from the luminosity of the Prophet's form when up close. So in reality, there are two eyebrows, but they are close together, but you can see a slight space. So what she is describing is al-aghlab, you know, what is predominant uh, irrespective of that slight space. There's different ways it's reconciled. When he was silent, he was dignified, and when he spoke, uh, a light rose over him. He is the most beautiful of people, and the most gleaming of them from afar, and the sweetest and finest of them up close. He was of sweet speech, evenly paced. His speech was not too long, nor too long. He didn't speak in short, choppy phrases, nor did he speak with too much verbosity. His speech was not too short nor too long. It's as though his words were a string of pearls. He was of medium height, not too tall, and the eye would not accuse him of being too short, meaning one would never say that he's too short either. He was a branch between two branches. Out of all of them, he was the most glistening to behold, the best in virtue, he had companions that would surround him. When he spoke, they would listen intently. And when he instructed, they rushed to fulfill his command. He was waited upon, obeyed, not frowning or blaming. So that's the hadith of Umabad. And the more detailed descriptions are, of course, found in the Shema'il of Imam Tirmidhi. This is a kind of mukhtasar. You have something to say? No? So that's the khalq. We now come to the khuluq, the character. Sure. So this phrase, he was a branch between two branches, it's a, it's a kind of euphemism in Arabic. So basically she's saying that between two things that are beautiful, he's the most beautiful. Between two strong branches, his is the strongest, right? That's one way it's explained. Yeah. So it's a statement of, of his fadl, his superiority. Now the next section, and we hope to go through this section. I don't know if that's going to happen though. Um, this is about the character. And again, this is a summary of the character. He's going to talk more and more about this in different parts of the book. He says, we'll mention something of the character of the Prophet ﷺ in summary, for who is able to count the grains of sand or drain the oceans? Allah Azza wa Jal has said to his noble Prophet, 
وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ And you are of an exalted character. So he's saying, listen, we have to summarize. Even if we went into detail, we could never finish that conversation. How can you drain the oceans and how can you count the grains of sand? So he mentions three verses of the Qur'an and then mentions narrations. The first verse, say, he listens to what is best for you. أُذُنُ خَيْرًا لَكُمْ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَيُؤْمِنُ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَرَحْمَةٌ لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا He listens to what is best for you. He believes in Allah, has faith in the believers, and is a mercy to those of you who believe. To the believers, he is most kind and merciful. بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَأُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ it is out of Allah's mercy that you have been lenient with them. فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَ لَهُمْ The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said that when the following verse was revealed, خُذِ الْعَفُوْ وَأْمُرْ بِالْعُرْفِ وَأَعْرِضْ عَنِ الْجَاهِدِينَ Hold to forgiveness, command what is right, but turn away from the ignorant. It's uh, said that when that verse was revealed, I asked Jibreel alayhi salam regarding its meaning. Jibreel said, Allah orders that you reach out to those who cut you off. You give to those who withhold from you. You pardon those who wrong you. And you do good to those who harm you. This is recorded in Imam al-Tabari's tafsir with his sanad. So this is a part of the tafsir of that verse. These, he says, are the traits of the prophets and the saints who follow them. When the incisors, you know what the incisor is? What's the, like, like this, this tooth, the incisor, right here. When the incisors of the Prophet ﷺ were broken and his blessed face was injured on the day of Uhud, the people said, make dua against them, supplicate against them, O Messenger of Allah. The Prophet ﷺ said, O oh Allah, guide my people, for they do not know. It was said to the Prophet ﷺ, Do you not curse the Quraysh, for they have harmed you so much? The Prophet replied, I was not sent as a curser, but I was sent as a mercy. The Prophet ﷺ has said, The most beloved of you to me, and the closest from amongst you to me in position on the day of stand on the day of standing is the one who has the best character from among you. And the most loathsome of you to me, and the most distant in position on the day of standing to me are those who talk loosely or loud mouthed. And are mutafayhiqun. Notice he doesn't translate that here. And the reason why he doesn't translate it is because even when the Sahaba heard that term, they were unclear about what it meant. It is the tasghir, diminutive form of uh, this fayhiq. Uh, or, or this uh, word is very, it's a word in Arabic, but the meaning was unclear. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, we understood what it means. 
about those who talk loosely and those who are loudmouthed, but who are the mutafayhiqun? And he said, al-mutakabbirun, the arrogant, those who are high-handed over others. So you see here that the, the good character of the Prophet ﷺ stands in contrast to these qualities. Notice here that he says the one who has the best character, he doesn't explain the best character here. He doesn't go into detail about what it entails, but it's in relation to those who are close to him. And then he says, those who are most distant from me on the day of judgment are those who talk loosely, are loud-mouthed, and are arrogant. So those are the polar opposites of the character of the Prophet ﷺ. In a hadith it is mentioned, good character melts away sins like the sun melts the snow. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, was the most forbearing of people, the most hilm, the most generous, and the most modest. He was more modest than a virgin secluded in her room. And what, to be more precise, it means the, the newlywed girl on her wedding night in her uh, Honey room suite. That's the word, right? That's what it's described. He was the most encompassing of people, the truest of them in speech, the softest of them in disposition, the most noble in interactions. He was always smiling, easy-natured, of a mild temperament. He was not harsh, hard, loud, or obscene. He was not a fault finder or a flatterer, so those are those are the two those are two opposites, aren't there? Right? You got the person who nitpicks every little thing to find fault with people, but on the opposite end you have the mudahin, the the flatterer. They they flatter people for things they don't really have. They big them up and puff them up and they become the person who just says everything that person may want to hear. He is neither of these. He would always answer the invitation of someone who would call him. He would accept gifts even if it was the shin of a sheep, and he would eat it and reward it. I said, subhanAllah, you know, there's people who, like you read this hadith, and he would always answer the invitation of someone who would call him. That, that is, you have to consider his position. He is the leader of Medina. He is the political leader, the military leader, the religious leader. He is the leader on every level. He has so many responsibilities, so many tasks, so many things going on. He had his personal ibadah, he had his family life, he had his wives, he had his children, he had his close followers, he had tribes to deal with, he had battles to prepare for, he had defenses to shore up. All of that, he's a very important person. He's the most important person. Yet if a slave, or a person of a, you know, a low standing, meaning they're not, they're not from the elite, they're just an ordinary person. If they gave him an invite to a dinner, he would find a way to come. Right? That's what makes it profound. He's not accepting the invitations of only the quote-unquote important people. No, it's everyone. 
And I, I, it's one thing to read that. It's another thing to see it. And uh, I, Allah blessed me to see that one time. Uh, in this, one of the schools I studied at, it was a, it was a somewhat large madrasa. We had over a thousand students. And the head of the school was a very busy man, right? He's tending to all sorts of responsibilities in addition to his teaching. And out of a thousand students, you know, you have, you know, of those students, you have those that are close, those that are closer, those who are closest, and you have those on the periphery. Well, one time that sheikh received an invite from one of the Western students. Western student had a child and wanted to have an aqiqah. So they, and they're poor, they're broke. We're all broke. But he managed to scrounge up a little bit of money and buy a small sheep, or it was a goat, slaughtered it, cooked it for the aqiqah, and then threw the, I think it was the bodyguard or the servant, someone of the sheikh, he asked them if he could invite him for the aqiqah, you know, at so-and-so's house. He didn't think he was going to come. He just wanted to do it. And subhanAllah, we go to the aqiqah. There's maybe 20 of us. And we're, you know, we're all gathering there. And then subhanAllah, down the road, you see the sheikh is walking with his walking stick and his bodyguard. And what is he doing on this side of the school? Because he's over here and this living area is way on the other side. He walked from his house all the way to that brother's house to, just to answer that invitation. And no one thought he would have done that, right? So it made it very impactful to see, okay, this person, there's a sincerity here of trying to live that hadith, to not turn down the, the invitation, right? And of course, sometimes you want to turn down invitations, don't you? <laughs> and there's, re there's sometimes legitimate reasons for that, right? But you see that as someone, as a, as a leader like him, he's trying to warm the hearts of those people. And he would do it. If, there's, if you know there's going to be all sorts of nonsense, then you don't have to accept, right? If it's mixed, you know, it's not wajib, right? But if it's a walima, it's more emphatic, it's, it's more of a command to answer that invitation as opposed to a more general gathering, uh, unless there's munkar taking place. So I go to a walima if I'm invited, but the moment I see people getting on a dance floor, I'm gone, I leave. I just go. I'll just leave. I don't care. And if I know ahead of time that it's going to be all of that, then I, maybe I'll conduct the nikah and then I leave. Yeah. He would become angry for the sake of his Lord and never for himself. So the Prophet ﷺ would get angry, but it was a ghadab rabbani. It was a lordly anger for the sake of his lord, never for himself. He never had a nafsani anger, right? And one of the challenges among quote-unquote religious people is making sure they don't try to clothe their nafsani anger uh, and give it a veneer of piety by saying, oh no, this is rabbani anger. I'm angry for the sake of Allah when it's really their nafs. So you have to be careful there. Is it okay to be angry? It's okay to be angry when the rights of Allah are violated. 
the way the one the person expresses the anger depends on their position, what they're able to do, and the greater good. But being angry for the sake of Allah is praiseworthy. It is rewardable in the sight of Allah, and it is a virtue. But it has to be Rabbani for the sake of Allah, right? It can't be for the sake of one's nafs. Uh, it can't be for the sake of embarrassment. It can't be for the sake of not liking that person and going the extra mile and being angry because you don't like them. And the sign of that is that if your friend does the same thing, you're not angry, it's not for Allah's sake. Because you're giving your friend a pass, but you're not giving a pass to this person. So if person A, your friend, does the exact same haram thing, and you don't get angry the way you do with person B, who does the same thing, that is a proof it's nafsani. If it was Rabbani, you'd be angry with this one and that one. In fact, you may get angrier with your friend because you know we have a relationship so I can be a little harsher with him because he knows it's from a place of love. Whereas person B, if we don't have a good relationship like that, I can be angry, but to correct it, I have to be mindful of what will get a response. That's why you see the Prophet ﷺ would sometimes speak more harshly with the senior companions for their slips and errors than he would for those new Muslims or ignorant Bedouins who were fresh into the deen. He would correct both, but he knows he can correct the senior Sahaba with a degree of severity that would further develop their souls more so than he could those who are still new to the faith, whose faith is, needs to be still strengthened and supported. They still have to be corrected, but it has to be done a little bit differently. So he pours the water, tells them to pour the water over the spot where the man urinated in the masjid. A senior sahaba wouldn't do that in the first place. It's inconceivable. But if they did, do you think that he would only tell them to pour the water? No, he would, he would rebuke that sahabi in a very strong way because they know better. Anyhow, he would be good-humored with his companions and interact with them. He performed the tahnik for their children, placed them in his lap and played with them. He would accept the invitation of a slave, a widow, or a poor person. He would visit the ill, even if they were in the farthest part of the city, and he would go walking. He visited the Bedouins and the children, and he accepted the excuse of a person. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? You accept the excuse of a person. He would always consult with his companions. He once said to the delegation of Abdul Qais who visited him, Welcome to the people. And he said to Ammar, Welcome to the good. And to Sayyidah Fatima, radiallahu anha, he said, Welcome to my daughter. When she would enter, he would stand up for her, kiss her, and then seat her in his place. We don't know of any other person for whom the Prophet ﷺ would stand upon coming in except say the Fatima. Once when it reached the Prophet ﷺ that Fatima anha had understood the intent of his words, he said, May her father and mother be ransomed for her. Right? You know that phrase in Arabic, it's very common. They would say that, uh, you know, Fida'an wa ya Rasulullah. May my mother and father be sacrificed for you. 
But we only have a couple of occasions in the seerah where the Prophet ﷺ would say that to other people. One of them is in this case. Once one of her children climbed upon the noble back of the Prophet ﷺ whilst he was prostrating and leading the people in prayer, then the Prophet ﷺ lengthened his prostration because of that. It was either Hassan or Hussein radiallahu anhuma. He would honor the nobility of every tribe and would say, a nobleman from his people has arrived, therefore honor him. And he would say, if a person honors his brother, he has only honored his Lord. This is in Abu Dawood. And he would say, treat people according to their rank. So this is actually from the hadith of Aisha. She said, the Prophet ﷺ commanded us, to treat people according to their level, their rank. The Prophet ﷺ would speak to the people and ask after them. He would inquire about them, what's going on. He would not deny anyone his smile. And in the narration in Arabic, their nasib, right? Their nasib, their share of his smile or their portion of his smile or good character. He would comfort the people and not estrange them. I Meaning he would not put them into situations or speak to them in a way that would estrange them from him or the community. He would say, make things easy and do not make them difficult. Give glad tidings and do not estrange them. He would ask after his companions. So we see the kind of false religiosity, which is the opposite of this, where the Prophet ﷺ says, yassiru wa la tu'asiru, bashiru wa la tunaffiru. Uh, give glad tidings and do not, or make things easy and do not make things difficult. And give glad tidings and do not cause people to flee, to cause them to be estranged. What we see in false religiosity is the opposite, where people go out of their way to make things difficult and not make them easy, and to cause people to flee and be estranged and not give them glad tidings. And for this reason, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, he's coined this term. He calls them the Tanfiris, the Tanfiriyun, the people of Tanfir. Whereas the people of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam are the true Tabshiriyun. The Tabshiri is the missionary, right, in Arabic. But here the Tabshiri means the one who gives glad tidings to people. And the one who does the opposite is Tanfiri. They drive people away through their character. He says, he would ask regarding the affairs that concern the people and would give each person who sat with him a share of his attention. Anyone who sat with him would think that there was no one more honored with the Prophet than he was. Uh, whoever came to him with a need, he would be patient with them until the person themselves would leave. He encompassed people with his character and nature. And he embraced them. He was a father to them, and they were all equal to him. They were not all equal in the sense of actual superiority, but in terms of treatment, he made them all feel special. He didn't make this one feel inferior to that one in how he dealt with them. No one took the hand of the Prophet ﷺ until that person would be the first to let go. He would always be the first to greet others with the salam and would be the first to shake the hands of his companions. He would honor the guest who would visit him and would sometimes spread his garments for the one 
who had no relation to him so that they could sit upon it. So it's mentioned that he did this for uh, the friends of Sayyidah Khadija when they would come and visit. He had a, a shawl kind of like this and he would take it, open it and put it on the floor as a way of honoring them. Uh, he also did this for, uh, uh, what is her name? Shayma. Shayma. Who knows who Shayma is? Who is Shayma? His sister. His sister? From Rada'a, from Saklim. Yes. He did this for Shayma when she came to visit. On occasions, if any of his companions were feeling low, he would joke with them to cheer them up. So this is a, there's a whole chapter on that in the Shama'il here, uh, the Mazah. At times, his companions would recite poetry in his presence or talk of matters from the age of ignorance, Jahiliyyah, and he would be silent. He would smile at what they would laugh at and would be astonished at what they found astonishing. These were in the post-Fajr uh, gatherings. They would gather after Fajr. And sometimes he would ask, anyone see a dream? And they would mention the dream and he would interpret it or he would remain silent. And they would sometimes read some poetry or reminisce or speak about the silliness they got up to in Jahiliya, right? And this is something he approved of, obviously within boundaries. Right? You, there's a limit, there's a difference between reminiscing or speaking about those things as a way of marveling at how far you've come versus going into all the lurid details, which becomes a kind of khawt fil batil of just being too graphic. So that's not what they were doing. He will walk in the market from time to time, enjoining the good and preventing the wrong. If anyone sat with him whilst he was praying, he would shorten his prayer and ask them regarding their need, and then he would return to his prayer. The Prophet of Allah was the most smiling of people. He would sit with the poor and the needy and would eat from that which would fall from the table. He once said to the servant of Mughira, supplicate for us and seek forgiveness for us. And he said to Umar, do not forget us, my brother, from your righteous supplications. And this is a proof, by the way, that it is permissible for one who is superior to ask dua from one who is inferior. Meaning someone who is an elder asking dua for one who is a junior. For the scholar and righteous person asking the common person to make dua for them. Because here is Rasulullah saying to Umar, don't forget us in your dua. He was the bravest of people. When the battle would be at its worst, his companions would seek protection with him. He was the most fearful of his Lord and the most modest before him. He never said what and never said, why did you do that or why did you not do that? You know, limada or limada farantikada wakada. If the companions spoke of the world, food or the hereafter, he would also speak. He would ride the animals with long ears at times. Now this one here, this is subtle. And I learned this from the Shaykh. What he means by the animals with long ears are donkeys. And he doesn't use the word donkey. And he says because, in English it's the same thing. You know, the word donkey. Does it have a good connotation? No. 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 
neither does it have a good connotation in the Quran. Right? Right? So the donkey or the ass, as it is in English, is not a, it doesn't have a good connotation. So, but the word himari does describe an animal that he did write upon on multiple occasions. So it was the way of the Sahaba and the way of many of the ulama to create distance between anything seemingly negative and the Prophet ﷺ, even verbally, even in the order of words, so that his name is not even next to something like that. So he kind of does it here when he says, um, he would ride the animals with long ears at times, the, the donkey, and would walk barefooted at times. At times he would not wear a shawl, a hat, or an imama. So the hat here is qalansuwa, like kufiya. So at times he would not wear the shawl, the hat, or the turban. He was the most distant of people from anger and the closest to pleasure. Meaning it would be very difficult for him to get angry, very easy to make him happy. He would give to such an extent like one who had no fear of poverty. That's actually the statement of a Bedouin who received a lot of camels from him. Um, he was the most abundant of people in worship and would fast to the extent that people would say he will not break his fast and would stand in prayer to the point it would be said he will not sleep. He will be silent for long periods continuously in thought and recurrently sad. And he, here the, in the Arabic and he, Right? He's, meaning he's not sad in the sense of depression. I gave a khutbah about this one time. Because these kinds of hadith should not be used to, uh, or they shouldn't be taken and fit into a modern mental health narrative. Where people say, well see, the Prophet was depressed too, like you. Therefore, you know, mental health awareness, because he too was depressed. No, it was not that. Right? The ulama comment on this and say that his ahzan are his worries over the state of his people. Right? When he says, The chapter of the Quran Hud and her sister chapters have turned my hairs gray. When you look at those chapters, and there's about seven or eight of them, what they all have in common is they're all describing the Day of Judgment and the fate of the nations that rejected their messengers. So this is what it means by uh, in constant sorrow. Not depression as a, in, as a, in, a, in a clinical sense. We have to be very careful here. He says, may Allah bless him, his family, and his companions and grant them peace. Sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillah. I wasn't sure we were going to finish it, but we did. So now we will go to the next section of the book, a major section in our next class on the ethereal realities and the physical attributes of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this is, a lot of this is about the khasais and the uniqueness of the eyes.
and the touch and the arms and the hearing and the senses and the miracles associated with those limbs and those senses. So it's a, it's a wedding between multiple different aspects. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen.